Father, we thank you for your word that you've communicated uh, to us uh, your truth. You've not left us, us in the dark. And so we pray that you would um, continue to enlighten us and illuminate your word through your spirit. Come, spirit, as we sang earlier. Come, spirit, come. And um, open our eyes to your truth. And we pray that we would be transformed by the preaching of your word this morning. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, every new year, there's um, kind of a, a new resolve to think about um, how it is we can live the good life, how it is that we can, maybe one way to put it, how it is that we can find happiness, what that looks like in a new year. And many have asked this question. In 1990, Chris McCandless had just graduated from Emory University and he decided he, he was on the fast track to success. He was popular. He had a lot going for him. And he, he said, I'm, I'm, I'm done with family. I'm done with friends. I'm done with this track. I don't care about the degree. And he hit the road to find happiness, he believed. And his journey led him, after a couple of years, into the middle of the Alaskan wilderness, um, into the Wild. It, it, the whole story became a popular best-selling book called Into the Wild and then a movie in the early 2000s. And there he is, though, starving in the middle of the Alaskan wilderness. He found, finds an abandoned bus where he spends his final days on earth. And he's reading, I think it was Dr. Shivago, but in, in, the, in, the, in the text uh, found where, where his body was found, there was the writing in his handwriting in the margin that said, happiness is only real when shared. Here's a man who thought happiness was to be found in abandoning all relationships, abandoning friends, abandoning the world, abandoning society. We're to go into the wild on my own. And tragically, he starves to death and his realization at the end of his life, happiness is only real when shared. Now, there's actually strong empirical data to support McCandless's uh, revelation. Boston psychiatrist Robert Waldinger has re recently just published a book called The Good Life, and it asks the question about happiness. And it's based on like decades of research into what happiness is. And here's what uh, Waldinger concludes in the book. True happiness, you ready? This is the big question, right? True happiness, how do we, what is it? Here's, here's where it comes from. Meaningful human relationships. That's true happiness. It's to be found in meaningful human relationships. It's the same conclusion that McCandless reached. Happiness is only real when shared. And that conclusion is a deeply biblical conclusion. Christ, in his ministry, as we've seen it in John's gospel is showing us what a full and complete life looks like, what the happy life, the blessed life looks like. And it's clear. Jesus lives a life shared. He shares his life. He shares his very self with others. He's, he's feeding others. He's healing. He's teaching. And he's, he's, always, he's always got a crowd around him. And then there's the disciples that he shares his life intimately with. 
um, sharing meals for three years, sleeping. They're, they're sleeping, they're traveling together, they're, they're, they're living life together, Jesus and his disciples. And we've seen for chapters Jesus um, communicating mysteries of the universe to these disciples in the upper room discourse. This is the whole fall. We've been looking at what Jesus has been telling his disciples there in the upper room and then, and then uh, I believe, in the garden as well on the night before his, his arrest and his death. So he's sharing his life with them. And now what John does in John chapter 17, this is another little transition point in the gospel. John peels back the curtain a bit further. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John records what Jesus prays to the Father. It's a whole chapter of prayer. As Jesus, the Son of God, shares in the life of God the Father through prayer. It's a relationship that Jesus has with the Father a shared life. And this relationship, this particular relationship, has, has existed from all eternity, from before time began. The triune God. And we, what we're going to see as we make our way this morning, and also even in the weeks ahead, is that happiness, as McCandless said, happiness is only real when shared. And it's not just shared with others, other humans. That's what Waldinger, the psychiatrist, concluded. It's a, it's, it's a relationship. It's, it's sharing in the life of our creator. That's, that's the key to happiness. Christ's life is a shared life, and our life is to be shared as well. It's to be folded into the, the happy land of the Trinity, of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Knowing God, that's the, that's the heart of the happy life, of the blessed life, of a life marked by joy. So we've got two points this morning that we're going to see. We're going to see how Christ's life is a shared life. And then we're going to also see how our life is to be shared with God. How we, our life is to be shared with God. So Christ's life is shared, and then how our life is to be shared with God. So first, Christ's life is shared. Look at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and he said... Now, notice, where does Christ turn his gaze? Upward. He, he lifts his eyes to heaven, and he prays. And, and notice, too, how John describes prayer for Jesus. He says, he simply said, right? He speaks. That's it. That's what prayer is. It's, it's simply speaking to God, conversing with God. Now, that, that can feel strange. On the one hand, that feels kind of strange, because and how many conversations do you speak, but you don't hear an audible voice return? Because that's how prayer is. We don't hear God speak back, not audibly. Very rarely. It's happened like a handful of times in history that God has spoken in a time of prayer. So that's rare. So on the one hand, it's kind of different, prayer. But on the other hand, it's the most natural thing we do. All humans on planet Earth Pray. It's like, a, it's like an instinct. You know the old saying that there's no, no atheists in the foxhole? Like when, when we come up against the impossibility of, of life in this world, we float prayers. It's just what we do. People on their deathbed, maybe they, they were atheists their whole lives. We, we, we float a prayer up in hopes that God hears. If there is a God, 
right? We turn to, to our creator, to our maker. And so on the one hand, praying feels maybe a little different, a little unique. But on the other hand, it's so natural to us to say, to speak to our father. So Christ is the most fully human that's ever walked the face of the earth. He is the God-man, fully divine, fully human. And we see he's a person of prayer. Now, last week, we looked, we considered the ways that this congregation has been praying uh, for our church, and we've seen how God has answered those prayers, and it was incredibly encouraging. And you can tell a lot about a person by considering their prayers, their priorities, a person's needs, their hopes, their dreams. What are the things you keep praying for? A prayer like, is a, sort of maps the heart of the prayer. So we've got a whole chapter of prayer, the prayer of Jesus. And as we spend the next three weeks, we'll be here in this chapter, John chapter 17, looking at this prayer. We're gonna, it's going to be revelatory what Jesus prays for us. So, so what does he pray? Look at verse 1. Again, he says, he's, so he lifts, this, he lifts up to the Father and he says, Father, the hour, the hour, the time, the time has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. He prays for glory. And notice the reciprocal nature of the glory, right? That, 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 as, the, that, the, that as the Son is glorified, the Son glorifies the Father. And you might think of glory as being akin to honor. It's not exactly that. There's a lot more to the word glory than, than honor. But you could think of it like this. When Jesus is honored... God is honored. The Father is honored. When Jesus is honored, the Father is honored. But what is the basis for Jesus receiving all this glory? Look at verse 2. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. You see, the Father, the Creator, God rules the creation. He made it. He holds it together. And he has given to the Son authority over all flesh. Christ is creator as well. And he sustains it by the power of his word, the author of Hebrews says. And the breathtaking truth of the the incarnation is this. Our maker, our creator, the author of the story, wrote himself into the pages of the story. And arrived. He broke in. He has authority. And as one commentator put it, Jesus has the whole world in his hands. He is the one, the, the, the one um, at, uh, uh, to whom all every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord. That authority that the Son has will be made manifest to all the world upon his return. In the meantime, though, Verse 2 again, he has given eternal life to the church, to, to, to those whom the Father has given, is what Jesus says. To the church. You see, the lordship of Christ is largely invisible. We're unable, it's concealed in large part. That's why we have to have like, people like Jana come up to share with us little, little expressions of the kingdom on earth. We need to be reminded of it because it's not abundantly clear at this point in time in history. But the promise is that the Spirit of God has revealed 
to the church, those whom the Father has given, the reality of Christ's lordship over all things. We might say that the, the, the church is on the right side of history because there is a world that is fading away, a world that fails to acknowledge Christ as Lord. It's crumbling and it's racing toward its own destruction. And the way of the future is the way of the church. A people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation confessing Christ as Lord. And how does that kingdom come? How, does, how, how, how do we arrive at that mystery? By the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, verse 2. The church is those whom the Father has given. The Father gives us this knowledge of Christ as Lord. So, but here, here, here's, I want to come back to this question of glory. What does the glory look like? It's kind of, we kind of get it when we hear that word thrown around. It's like, it's good. We like it. But what does it look like? What is glory? What does Christ's glory look like? Well, look at verse 4. Jesus says, you've already seen it in my ministry. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So Christ has glorified the Father in his ministry. And what did that look like? Well, it looked like a lame man limbless and unable to move at all, sitting next to a pool for 40 years, nearly 40 years, hoping to find just someone to dip him in the healing waters and find healing. And Jesus, it looks like Jesus coming and finding that man and healing him. It looks like a woman trapped in sexual sin, finding a way out and finding life in Christ. The glory of God looks like a party that's run out of wine and then gets an abundant supply of wine. And not just a lot of wine, but the best wine at a party. That's the glory of God made manifest on earth. The glory of God is a violent storm that's wreaking havoc upon the sea, being calmed at the voice of his command. The glory of God is a blind man, blind since birth, finding sight. And most dramatically, the glory of God is a dead man in his grave for two days, being resurrected to new life. That's the glory of God in the ministry of Christ. We've seen it already. But there's more to the glory story of Christ. Because there, you might say, actually, the glory has hardly even begun. Look at verse 5 again. And now, Father, now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus has has said this already. There was a glory that has been revealed in the ministry of Jesus. And here we are, hours before his death. And and, and there's a glory that is to be revealed in the death and resurrection of Christ. A greater glory. Back in John chapter 12, remember when the voice from heaven came down? The voice of the Father. And the voice of the Father said, Jesus says, Father, glorify your Son. And the voice from heaven says, I have glorified it. Right? Right? In the ministry of Christ, my name has been glorified in all of the works of Christ on earth in his earthly ministry. And then the the voice of the Father says this, and I will glorify it again. God the Father, the voice of heaven says, I have glorified it. I will glorify it again. It will be glorified in the death and resurrection of our Lord. Now, the big question, of course, is how can the cross be the glory How can a means of execution specially designed to heap shame upon the crucified, how can that be the glory of God? I like the way Paul kind of 
packages, packages the question in 1 Corinthians. He says, the cross is folly to those who folly to the Jews who demand a sign and the Greeks who seek wisdom. He says, but we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's folly to the Gentiles. But to those whom the Father has given, right, the same language, those whom the Father has given, those that are called, the cross is the wisdom and power of God. Because what we see on the cross is what God is really like. God is one who pours his life out, pours everything that he has out for the benefit of his creation. That's what we see. That it's the life source of all creation. It's, it's, it's the rumble. Christ on a cross marks the starting point for the recreation of the whole world, a new creation. We see God on a cross as God as life giver to a fallen humanity, to a fallen world. And Christ prays that God would glorify him with the glory that he had from the beginning. And he's, he, he's referring not just to his death, on, uh, he's referring to his death and his resurrection as like a package deal. So to summarize the prayer, uh, Frederick Dale Bruner summarizes it really well. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read his, 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 his summary of the prayer. This is what Jesus is praying. If you want just a summary, here it is. Father, please help me to say and to do the right things this decisive weekend. Give me the strength and the wisdom to go through the trials and cross just ahead so that I can make a full and clean atonement for the whole world's sins as you and I so deeply want. And then especially, Father, please raise me up again after I am put to death in order to conquer death and to show the world that death has been conquered in history. I want this weekend to be everything you and I have hoped it would be for the world and for the church, the bearer of our message to the world. Please help me and please help them. Do you see the fellowship, the life shared of Christ? his relationship to the Father, his prayer. We're going to continue to see it as we move through this prayer. But now I want to shift, shift gears and consider how um, our life is to be found in a life shared with our Creator. And so that's our second point uh, this morning. And we see it right here in verse 3. What does Jesus say? What does he pray? This is eternal life, deep Lasting life, we might say. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What's eternal life? What is, what is deep and lasting life? That's the question. That's the question that McCandless was pursuing. That's the question that Waldinger wrote a whole book on for decades of research. He's been looking at this question. What is deep and lasting life? Here's the answer that the scriptures give. Knowing God and knowing the Son whom he sent. That's the answer to the deep life, to the good life. Our, our Westminster Shorter Catechism has a great question. It's what is the chief end of man? A good paraphrase of that question is, what's your purpose? What is your purpose? And you know how, remember how the catechism answers the question? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To, in other words, we might say, to know God, to delight in him, to have a relationship with him. John Piper famously said that God is most glorified when we are most satisfied 
in him. The deep life, real happiness, it's not to be found in owning more real estate, having more casual sex, owning more luxury cars or clothing, or having more degrees or whatever. The the good life, the deep life, is to be found in knowing God. Life, real life, is shared. Happiness is only real when shared, as McCandless said. But not just with anyone. It's a life shared with our Creator. Now, life without God, we, we have a really good picture of it when we consider the blind man. Remember the blind man? You know, can't see. He's groping his way through life, unsure, moving very little because of his blindness. That's what life apart from God does to us. It makes us spiritually blinded. And that's one of the resounding claims of John in his gospel. Because if if the fundamental thing for human happiness is to know God, and God comes to us face to face, like touching, shaking our head, putting his arm on our shoulder and saying, peace be with you. And, And our response to that arrival is to, by and large, put him on the cross Something is deeply wrong with us. We're blinded. That's what, that's what John says, and that's the language of Scripture. We're blinded, like the blind man. We need to have the Spirit uncover our eyes so that we can see the truth, that the way to real life is, is knowing God. Listen to what J.I. Packer says. The world becomes a strange, crazy, painful place, and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. Disregard knowing God and the study of God, and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded, blinded, with no sense of direction, no understanding of what surrounds you. This is the best way to waste your life and lose your soul. So again, deep and lasting life is a life that knows God. Now, what is life with with God like? Well, there's pleasures evermore. I like the way Psalm 16 describes life with God. Life at the right hand of God. Listen to what it says. You make known to me the path of life. You make known to me the path. If, if, If not knowing God, you're blindfolded and you're stumbling around and you can't make your way through life. Life with God is, is a life where God makes known to the path to real lasting life. And in your presence, Psalm 16 says, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. I like the way C.S. Lewis put it. He said, um, our Lord finds our desires not too strong. You know, uh, it's easy to think, maybe even as Christians, but definitely as non-Christians, like Christianity, it's all about like restraining desire. And holding back, holding back from the pleasures that we would otherwise seek. That's what Christianity is, strapping ourselves tight and avoiding all happiness and pleasure. C.S. Lewis says, that's not it. God doesn't find our desires too strong. He finds them too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition. When infinite joy is offered us, we're like the ignorant child that wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. 
So knowing God is the path to the pleasures that your heart seeks and to the good life. Deep, lasting life. Now that's hard to believe. That's hard to believe, isn't it? But it makes sense. And I want to explain two reasons why it makes sense. Um, The first is, is, is the relationship piece. And then secondly, the creation piece. So first, the relationship factor. The relationship. Why life with God, knowing God is fundamental. Because here's the thing. All of our lives have been formidably shaped by relationships. Relationships with parents and siblings and teachers and coaches and mentors and pastors and professors and friends. All of these relationships that we've had, for better or worse, have shaped us and continue to shape us. To know another is to be formed in some way. There, there is no such thing as a lone wolf. This was, this was Chris McCandless's big revelation. He tried to leave society, abandon all that he knew, and he came to realize that's not, the, that's not the good life. Real life is marked by relationships. So, given that, it only makes sense that the most important relationship, like the bigger the relationship, the bigger the impact, right? Your parents have a bigger impact in your relationship than the person you buy groceries from and you see once a week, and, and so on. The relationship with your creator is the biggest of all relationships. Your creator is with you all the time when you sleep and when you rise and when you go to bed and when you wake, when you eat. All the time, God is there. And his relationship, therefore, is fundamental to, 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 be, to you, to who you are. Now, there's another reason why our relationship to our creator is fundamental and that is the creation factor. I want you to, you, you know this, creation is loaded with gifts, isn't it? You know, the most pagan people tend to be the people that dive deepest into the gifts of creation. Maybe they spend their weekends, you know, playing golf or skiing or fishing or whatever it is, um, going headlong into the joys of creation, but they stop. They stop short. Think, think of it this way. Imagine that you're making your way through the woods, and you see a little piece of gold, and you see a little ruby, and you see precious jewels, just like a few of them, just a little trail. And you pick up four of those things, four of those precious jewels, and you sit there, and you look at them, and you start, like, petting them, and you start kissing, and you hug them. You're like, this is so great. This is so beautiful. But you don't ever think to keep following the trail to find the source, Right? Not realizing that it's not just four little precious jewels. There's a whole treasure at the source. And what the scriptures say is, yes, there are delights in creation. But there's a a trail. If you follow the trail, it gets you back to the creator. So don't stop short at creation. Go all the way to the creator. That is where there are pleasures evermore, as the psalmist says. The only way to live life, the happy life, is knowing God. Real life, real happiness, is only shared. And Christ shows us this in his his life, as he regularly retreats to spend time with the Father in prayer. But he doesn't just, like, demonstrate that life with the Father is, is good. He gives us the means 
the, the, the ferry, as St. Augustine liked to say, to cross um, over to, the, to life with the Father. His, his atoning death, which, again, he's hours away from, that is the only means by which humanity might find fellowship with God the Father and God the Spirit and God the Son. Life, real life, is the shared life. And so, you know, this, this whole sermon, the, the point I think here is to say that real life is knowing God. Now that begs the question, well, how do we know God? That's another sermon for another day. But just real quickly, some of the means by which we come to a deeper understanding of God. Just like Jesus, we pray. We study the scriptures. We serve one another. We come to, to worship together and hear the word preached. We receive the sacraments. We commune with the people of God. We, all of these things are means by which we grow in, in our relationship with the Father. I want to close by uh, quoting Charles Spurgeon, who says this as it, as it relates to knowing uh, the triune God, knowing the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Um, Charles Spurgeon said more than a hundred years ago. He says, oh, there is, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go, plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can be so, which can so comfort the soul, so calm the welling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the God, of of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have um, not just taught us through your scriptures, what the good life is like, knowing God, having fellowship with with you. But you also gave us the means. It's a means that requires nothing, nothing of us. What a shock to the systems of religion that we create. It requires nothing of us but to admit our need for Christ. And so I pray that we would would know you in Christ, that we would um, have fellowship, that we would taste and see your goodness as we continue to worship, as we come to the table. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.